This is Sophie Wilson, and you are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Support the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast on patreon.com slash slowboatsailing. Hello, this is Linus. I mentioned a few episodes ago that I was really busy with Slow Boat Cuba. Now I've finally emerged from the writing and the recording of the audiobook and I can share part of it with you today. This does mean that I am not going to be able to bring you the crew of Sailing Baby Blue this week or this month, but we will get to hear from them in coming episodes. Next month, we will have one of my favorite YouTube channels, uh, the stars, creators of it, uh, the crew of the Cheeky Monkey and the Chase the Story YouTube channel, plus their awesome Surf to Turf blog, um, Tasha and Ryan, to talk about their South Pacific adventures. This week, we're going to hear chapters one through four of my new book, Slow Boat to Cuba. That book will launch on Amazon in late November, but for listeners of the podcast, you can hear the first four chapters right away, and patrons of the podcast at the first mate level, $3 or more per episode or per month level, can listen to the entire audiobook. I'll also make uh, chapters uh, five and six available as this week's bonus episode to patrons who are not at the $3 first mate level who like to listen to a little bit more. So one of the things that, you know, I've been sort of sad about is that I can't bring you interviews from all the wonderful sailors putting out great blogs, great YouTube channels, and telling wonderful stories about their sailing. And so I've developed this on the AIS segment for the podcast where people putting out great YouTube channels that you may not have heard of have a chance to tell us about what they're filming about their sailing in their own words. So it's my hope we'll uh, be able to spend like a minute or two of each podcast highlighting these great sailors creating great YouTube channels. So the name comes from AIS. You typically don't see the boat. All the boats that you see on AIS, you typically don't get a close-up look. So it's not like we're sharing in Anchorage, but we do see them, and maybe we can call them on the VHF because they're in VHF range if they're in AIS range and get a little bit to know about them. And we got to know a little bit about a boat on our trip to Cuba who was in AIS range, on VHF range, and eventually we got to know their crew a lot better. If you read the book, you'll get to find out about who that was. And so hopefully you'll get to know more about the, the folks on the on the AIS segment, more either through your perusing or maybe other podcasters will interview them, or maybe uh, we'll get to interview them later on as we have more time to do so. Okay, so here is a couple of our first on the AIS segment guests. Hey, I'm Chad. And I'm Katie. And we're from Coast Life. A YouTube channel about sailing. We spent this last summer learning how to sail. It's been a little bit of an adventure so far. We try to keep it real in our videos, showing both our successes and our failures. 
but always with a sense of humor. And silly hashtags. Eventually, we hope to be liveaboards and sail down to the Caribbean and maybe even the world. Next sailing season, we should be a little more experienced and we'll be exploring way more of Nova Scotia. So search for Coast Life on YouTube and subscribe to follow along with us on our journey. Coast Life. Slow Boat to Cuba by Linus Wilson. Copyright 2016, Linus Wilson. All photographs are by Linus Wilson. Cover art and maps are by Linus Wilson. This audiobook is read by Linus Wilson and is produced by Ox River Publishing, Lafayette, Louisiana, USA. All rights are reserved, except for brief quotations. No portion of this book may be reproduced without the express written permission of the author or Ox River Publishing. Ox River Publishing is a division of Vermilion Advisory Services. Acknowledgements. I want to thank my wife, Jana Wilson, for all her support and encouragement. Further, I am grateful for the free and reduced price gear provided by our generous sponsors. That gear included a four-man offshore commander 2.0 life raft from Revere Survival, a nine-foot offshore Fiorentino para anchor, a 45-pound mantis anchor, the mantis chain grabber, and the mantis anchor swivel. Thanks are due to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast guests, whose good advice helped me prepare for this trip. Moreover, I'm grateful for all the good advice that I received from sailors on various forums in Facebook in preparation for this trip and while outfitting and repairing the slow boat. Authors note, the names of some people in the book have been altered to protect their privacy. Chapter 1. Why Cuba? Cuba was in the way. Open up a map or a chart and any boat coming from Florida to the Gulf of Mexico has Cuba standing between it and the Panama Canal. If you want to head south and sail around the world by way of the Panama Canal as I did, you must work your way around Cuba. The most popular tactic for sailors from the Gulf Coast of the USA or Atlantic Coast of North America is to head down the thorny path. The thorny path involves island hopping. That means slowly going east against the steady trades until you land in the Eastern Caribbean. Once there, instead of motoring and beating into the wind, you have a beam reach until you reach Trinidad and Tobago. After 2,500 nautical miles upwind from New Orleans, my home port, a boat will have to stop outside the hurricane zone. It will surely have taken six months or likely more to get there. Then the crew still has 1,000 nautical mile downwind sail across the whole length of the Caribbean Sea. On this downwind sail, the boat almost surely will have to sail through near gale or worse conditions past Colombia. There is a permanent Colombian low that often stretches from the Caribbean coast of Colombia to Jamaica that makes for a rough passage for most boats bound for the Panama Canal from the Eastern Caribbean. 3,500 nautical miles is a huge distance, especially when you are mostly tacking up wind on a boat that is lucky to make three knots dead into the wind. If all goes well, I would stop in the Eastern Caribbean after I'd circled 90% of the globe. Right now, I wanted to take the shorter path of about 1,500 nautical miles from New Orleans. 
that path went straight through Cuba. I did not have the luxury of time. I was sailing around the world part-time. My wife and I decided that we did not want to quit our jobs. Since I taught, I had summers off. I could sail during the summers, and my wife and my five-year-old daughter could join me for part of the summer cruise. My wife worked a more typical schedule. She only had a few weeks of vacation per year. The earliest that I could sail was May. That was just one month before the start of hurricane season. I did not want to be living or sailing on a boat in the most dangerous part of the hurricane belt during the height of hurricane season. June is historically the least active month of hurricane season. My new insurance company, Lloyd's, required that I had to be out of the hurricane zone by July 1. Panama is outside the hurricane belt. That meant I had May and June to get to Panama. If you factor in weather windows and going upwind, bypassing Cuba was out of the question. In theory, you could just sail around Cuba, but the trade winds make that very difficult. Tacking on the bay is very different than beating in 2 to 3 meters, 6 to 10 foot swells in the Caribbean Sea. Plus, the Yucatan current is stronger than the Gulf Stream, and it pushes a boat north at speeds of around 3 knots. Strong currents are prone to creating dangerous waves when wind opposes current. Thus, a fair wind in the Yucatan Channel west of Cuba would mean dangerous waves. If your boat's top speed is six knots like mine, sailing upwind in such a strong current is almost impossible. Being able to rest and refuel in Cuba would make sailing to Panama so much easier. We could use the barrier islands on Cuba's south coast to break up the trade winds and swells, much like sailors use the Intracoastal Waterway, ICW, on the eastern seaboard to make progress south to the Bahamas. The problem with the Cuba strategy was the half-century-old embargo. The Cuba embargo prevented American sailors and U.S. flagged vessels from visiting Cuba. When Jana, Sophie, and I were sailing in the Bahamas during my sabbatical from teaching, the U.S. policy was changing on the executive level. These changes raised the prospect that I could legally sail to Cuba. This change upended 50-plus years of sailing orthodoxy, which said sailing the entire 1,000-mile east-west distance of the Caribbean Sea was the best way to sail to Panama. This orthodoxy was not brought about by good sailing directions, but in large part by the failed 50-year embargo that prevented U.S. sailors from visiting the largest island in the Caribbean Sea. We were prevented from sailing to the island that lay due north of the Panama Canal and due south of Florida. Sailing to the Eastern Caribbean is sailing east to go south. It makes no sense except in the prism of the Cuba embargo. Chapter 2. Getting Permission to Sail to Cuba According to my research, only one U.S. flag boat received a permit required to sail legally to Cuba in 2014. Regulatory changes in 2015 allowed 90 boats to obtain the necessary permission from the U.S. Coast Guard to sail to Cuba in the first 10 months of that year. My route planning 
to sail to the Panama Canal via Cuba was made possible based on the changing regulations in 2015 allowing some U.S. sailors to visit Cuba. There are many tales of U.S. sailors who have violated the embargo and face no sanction. Nevertheless, if a U.S. sailor violates the Cuban embargo, the penalties can be very stiff. Any person may be subject to, one, imprisonment for not more than 10 years, two, a monetary penalty of not more than $10,000, three, seizure and forfeiture of the vessel, and four, a civil penalty of not more than 25000 for each day of the violation. Starting in December 17, 2014, the President of the United States, Barack Obama, began announcing executive orders which made travel to Cuba easier. The U.S. Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control, OFAC, general permit process, began on January 16, 2015. The general permit process allowed individual Americans to determine on their own if they fall under one of 12 categories. This allowed Americans to travel to Cuba without applying to U.S. government. Qualifying travelers could visit Cuba with no spending limits while in Cuba and with no prior U.S. government approval under the new regulations. For decades prior, OFAC licenses were almost impossible to get, even well-qualified journalists complained about how difficult it was to obtain one. Suddenly, in early 2015, no application was necessary. I did apply for an OFAC license in July 2015, and the U.S. Treasury wrote back to say no application was necessary as long as I wrote down for my own records why I qualified. I traveled under the journalistic license based on my writing in books, magazines, and blogs. The 12 permissible categories of travelers were as follows. 1. Family visits. 2. Official business of the U.S. government, foreign governments, and certain intergovernmental organizations. 3. Journalistic activity. 4. Professional research and professional meetings. 5. Educational activities. 6. Religious activities. 7 public performances, clinics, workshops, athletic and other competitions and exhibitions. Eight, support for the Cuban people. Nine, humanitarian projects. Ten, activities of private foundations or research or educational institutes. Eleven, exportation, importation, or transmission of information or informational materials. Twelve, certain authorized export transactions. Unfortunately, this was not enough. The boat needed an export license. I found from other sailors on Facebook that an export license for the boat could be obtained from the Commerce Department's Bureau of Industry and Security, BIS, and applied in August 2015. I made some errors in what was a complicated two-page application. It only took about an hour to fill out. BIS also had telephone support that was helpful. The person who checked my application showed me my errors by electronic communication and told me to reapply with corrections. In early September 2015, I was granted a one-year license to take my 31-foot island packet sailboat, the slow boat, to Cuba.
A few days after I got the one-year license on September 18, 2015, export license applications were not necessary for many U.S. boaters. As long as the visit was 14 days or less to Cuba, the boater did not have to apply to BIS. Boaters could obtain general licenses for themselves and their crew OFAC approval and for their boat BIS approval, merely if they wrote down why they were in one of the 12 categories of travelers permitted by the embargo. I thought I was ready to legally sail for a few weeks. Unfortunately, I soon found out that one or more government approval was needed to legally sail to Cuba. Three approvals were needed. The U.S. Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control and the Commerce's Bureau of Industry and Security, BIS, offer no application licenses. Still, one application is mandatory for all boaters. U.S. boaters have to apply for the Coast Guard permit CG-3300 form to legally sail to Cuba. I sent in my CG-3300 application which is a simple two-page form on October 23, 2016. Rosa Garrison, who processes the Cuba permit applications for the USCG, called me a few days after I applied on October 27, 2016. Unlike the folks at OFAC and BIS, Ms. Garrison did not seem to have a good grasp on the regulations and was unable to answer the most basic questions. She asserted over the phone that I was going to visit under a temporary 14-day sojourn from the BIS. In fact, I applied and was granted a one-year permit for which I supplied a license number on CG 3300. She also asserted that you must return to the USA under OFAC general licenses. This is only true under temporary sojourns without a BIS application, one-way trips are permitted with BIS applications. Further, OFAC since September 2015 has circulated an FAQ that says there was no requirement that travelers to Cuba had to return directly to the United States. After my application languished for a few days, I submitted a Freedom of Information request, FOIA, on November 11, 2016. I requested the submission dates, decision dates, and the decisions accept or reject for all CG 3300 applications submitted between January 1, 2014 and November 1, 2015. I did not get a response to the FOIA until late January 2016. On November 20th, I got word that my application was rejected. I immediately disputed the grounds for rejection over email. I was not traveling under the 14-day rule as they asserted. I spoke to the captain who reviewed my rejected permit, Mark J. Fedor. He granted that they made an error not reading my BIS export license. Nevertheless, he insisted that I had to specify the names of my crew members on my reapplication. I had left the crew blank. He encouraged me to reapply. This meant I had to choose a crew member quickly. I had been interviewing dozens of crew members since July. All the trouble with the USCG permit made me risk-averse about selecting an American crew member. I would have to justify why that crew member qualified. I selected my first choice among the crew applicants who were not U.S. citizens, 
Stevie was a Canadian citizen and a backpacker who had lots of offshore experience in boats in the low 30-foot range. I really liked that he filmed himself living in a cave in the Bahamas for several weeks. Contango had to be a step up from the hot buggy cave. If he could tough out being a caveman, he was tough enough for life on a small boat. He was my first choice among that pool of applicants. Stevie quickly accepted. I resubmitted my application with Stevie's crew on November 24, 2015. Captain Fedor reconsidered and approved my Cuba application on November 30, 2015. It took me four months and three applications from three different federal agencies, OFAC, BIS, and USCG, to legally travel to Cuba. My BIS license took about a month, as did the USCG permit. I applied to OFAC even though I did not need to, which also delayed the process a month. Between the BIS approval and USCG application, I waited over a month before filling out the CG 3300. Half of the time, a CG 3300 application has a decision within 13 days. Based on my research, 10% of the cases a decision is reached only after a month has passed. Some applications are approved the same day. One application took 143 days to process. Since March 2015, the acceptance rate was 95%. Prior to that, only 14% of applications were accepted. Based on the time until acceptance and the initial rejection, my experience was worse than the typical applicant in the sample. Nevertheless, I suspected that the USCG got very few applications for trips that did not start and end in the USA. There were 50 times more applicants, 100 applications, in the first 10 months of 2015 than in all of 2014, two applications. The changing regulations had a huge impact on the numbers of U.S. boaters seeking permission to sail to Cuba. Chapter 3, Outfitting the Boat to Sail Around the World Every boat part costs twice as much abroad, shipping costs three times as much abroad, and takes ten times as long. When you are cruising, you don't have access to a car, so you will find it hard to get new tools or gear needed to make tough installations. Living by those maxims, I was always ordering more boat parts and installing what I had in the 10 months leading up to departure. After our cruise of the Bahamas in 2015, in my book Slow Boat to the Bahamas, I became a great believer in spares. I developed big lists of spares. I got lots of engine spares such as filters, elements, pumps, alternator, starter, and injectors. I bought over a thousand worth of spares and asked diesel engine mechanics on Facebook to suggest the most likely parts to fail and the most important parts to bring. I brought spare filters for the Honda outboards and generators. I had two of the Honda 2000i generators and two Honda 2 horsepower outboards. Duplication meant that it was unlikely that both generators or both outboards would be out of service. I replaced the hard-to-change doll fuel filter with a Raycor 500MA, which was easy to change. 
I also installed a water alarm and gauge that tells how dirty the filter element was. I used an engine hour based maintenance schedule to change the filters, but the alarms gave me peace of mind. Stevie told of how his last big offshore trip was marred by water in the engine. He and his skipper had transited the Panama Canal and were almost to the Galapagos when the skipper discovered water in the oil. Water can destroy the engine. They sailed without the engine all the way back to Panama City. Because of all the calms and adverse winds, they were at their breaking point by the time they made it to the Balboa Yacht Club in Panama City. Mechanics were able to fix the problem by doing several oil changes. Unfortunately, after that ordeal, the skipper gave up on sailing the South Pacific and returned the boat back to his home in Florida. I was determined not to suffer that same fate. Nigel Calder writes that water in the engine is a very common problem that strikes sailboats on their first offshore passage in his marine diesel engines. Water can get in the fuel and the engine block from the vents, the exhaust, or the raw water intake. I moved the fuel tank vent high on the starboard aft side of the boat to the starboard top of the cockpit. I could imagine the rail down, but standing water higher than the top of the cockpit seemed unlikely. I installed a flapper at the engine exhaust to make it harder for waves on the stern to lap into the exhaust. I also installed an elbow prior to the exhaust outlet that raised the exhaust hose and made it hard for siphoning to occur. At the raw water intake, I combated the potential for siphoning to the engine block by putting in a vented loop. Calder warns that you need to put a hose at the vent. If you don't, salt water will spurt out the vent onto the engine and into the bilge. I vented the anti-siphon loop high on the stern of Contango. When the engine is running, you can feel water coming out of that vent. I was worried that the vented loop may lead to overheating, but had no cooling problems after this installation. I got spare standing rigging from the rigger who supplied the island packet factory. Instead of replacing the rig and having no spare, I kept the rig and took along the factory fitted rig as a spare. The 200-watt solar arch behind the backstay was bent and mangled. I used 7 8 inch aluminum where I should have used something stronger. I investigated prefabricated solar arches, but decided against them because they would have created overhangs, which would have made docking more difficult. I talked to two welders, but I thought their prices were too high, around $1,600 and had to work around their schedule. Instead, I constructed it myself with one-inch stainless steel tubes at West Marine. I used end fittings, elbows, jaw fitting, and connectors that I bought from West Marine and Amazon. It was expensive and took a lot of time. I would regret not having the welders do it in the first place. We did not have enough power generating capacity in the Bahamas. To partially address this, I got a $400 400-watt 400 rated wind generator on Amazon and spent much more money mounting it. 
I got a 14 foot 316 stainless steel pipe as a generator pole. I had a welder weld a base onto it and cut off two feet. The welded part rusted immediately. I had to paint the welded part with silver paint. I used two stainless one-inch tubes with bimini attachments to support the pole. I used lime to also lash the pole to the stern pulpit. The 12-foot pole was too heavy. Jana and I could not steady it enough to mount it. It did not help that 30-knot winds were ripping through the marina at the time. I cut off 2.5 feet more, and that made a huge difference. Still, if I had to do it over, I would have used an aluminum pole. We mounted the 400-watt wind generator on the port aft corner of the boat. It put out modest amounts of energy the whole trip as measured by my charge controller. I used rubber between the connectors so the generator would not make noise. It was surprisingly quiet and worked at night. When not in use, I used the brake switch and tied off the blades. I also installed six flexible solar panels that fit between the lifelines. I used zip ties to mount them. They worked so well that I installed six more and wired them to a controller for a total of 300 watts of rated output. There were a lot of gadgets that I gave up on, like SSB radio for long-range communication. I got a text-only satellite phone for offshore communication for $300 instead of installing $4,000 worth of SSB equipment. Nevertheless, after my near collision in slow boat to the Bahamas in the Gulf Stream, I thought that getting an AIS transceiver was a great idea. The cost was around $500. AIS allows you to see ships which must have an AIS transceiver and other commercial vessels. I had to get a ship station license from the FCC to get an international MMSI number, which was about $150 for my boat. Our new international MMSI then had to be programmed into the AIS transceiver. The AIS installation was tricky because it involved NMEA 1983 and NMEA 2000 connections to the chart plotter. You can see ships on the chart plotter and get collision alarms. Further, I had to apply for some codes on an SD card from the manufacturer after filling out a form including the boat's MMSI number before the unit would work. To get the card, I had to complete a form which asked for the boat's MMSI number and dimensions. It was good that I did not leave this to the very end. I had to wait for the SD card to come in the mail. The whole process was to comply with some U.S. government regulation. I advise that you begin your AIS installation long before your departure day. Another thing that you need to register is your EPIRB. We got a Class 2 manual release EPIRB for emergencies. I only had one personal locator beacon, PLB, which I wore on my life jacket in the Bahamas. I bought a second PLB and registered it along with the EPIRB. Registration is free. 
rescue personnel are much more likely to find you if your POB and EPIRB are registered with your details, the vessel details, and the contact details of your loved ones. We already had storm sails, a storm jib and tri-sail with an external track. The slow boat already had three slab reefs for the main. For this trip, we got a a nine-foot offshore Fiorentino para-anchor for stopping the boat in a storm well offshore. It was the best sea anchor on the market. I love that it was very heavy-duty and came packed in a custom duffel bag. We also got a four-man Revere Offshore Commander 2.0 life raft, which was packed with all kinds of emergency gear. We liked that it was so heavy-duty with a boarding ladder and had a great canopy. One of the first things that I installed was a 40 gallon per day water maker that I bought on eBay. There are tons of filters, pumps, and switches, as well as plumbing connections with this install. The high pressure pump and pre-filters all need to be below the water line. I was able to get this working and it seemed to desalinate the brackish water of Lake Pontchartrain when we tested it with the total dissolved solids meter on a fall day at anchor. Never use your water maker in the marina because its overpriced membrane can be destroyed by oily marina water. After that successful test, I pickled it per the directions. That was the last time it worked. Not only did the expensive hunk of metal never work, but it also had a three foot by two foot by three foot plastic bin filled with filters that I did not need for the water maker taking up space the whole trip. I told Stevie in his phone interview that we would never depend on the water maker or delay our trip to get it working. We never did and it never worked. Lee cloths are essential if you want crew in the side berths to get plenty of rest. Lee cloths help sailors by preventing them from rolling out of their berths. Stevie would use his lee cloth on all our offshore passages. He mentioned how his previous boats did not have them and he found it very hard to stay rested when he was on the high side of the boat or the seas were rough. In one case he said he would share a bunk with another crew member on the low side of the boat. That meant he would lay in that crew member's pool of sweat. I bought the fabric and attachments and Janice sewed the lee cloths for the port single berth and the starboard double berth that pulled out when the table was up. We used three quarter inch double braids stay set to tie the cloths to eyes on the bulkheads. Janet looked at several designs and insisted that they have snaps on the bottom. The snaps went under the cushion and attached to the wooden berth. Chapter 4 Provisioning I spent the final two months packing the boat full of food in my spare time. It is well known that many foodstuffs are hard to get in Cuba. Further, my plan involved visiting remote parts of Cuba where there were not even towns. My first and last ports were marinas in the middle of nowhere, Cabo San Antonio and Cayo Largo. Havana was on the wrong side of the island to get to Panama, and a stop surely would have put us miles out of the way and weeks behind schedule to beat our July 1st deadline to land in Panama. 
Finally, grocery shopping while cruising is time-consuming and hard because you often don't have ready access to a car. I brought too little food in our 2015 cruise of the Bahamas, and we went hungry at times and paid exorbitant prices when we could find any store. I went grocery shopping six times at six different grocery stores. Each time I filled the cart entirely full. I only bought the food to be refrigerated on my last two trips. I broke with my tradition of cleaning the refrigerator out and turning off the power when I left the boat on the last weekend prior to our Friday, April 29th departure day. I wanted to leave on the first possible day. Stevie was flying in on that evening of April 28th after my last class. I tested out the various canned meats before my first grocery run. Spam was super salty and slimy. Yuck. There would be no spam on my boat. Vienna sausages were worse. Only our dog daily liked them. Canned ham, chicken, turkey, crab, tuna, corned beef hash, and wolf brand chili all tasted great, and I bought at least a half a dozen cans of each. I also got lots of canned vegetables, fruit, sauces, and refried beans. In addition to Pringles and crackers, which store well, tortillas are breads that have a long shelf life in their packaging. I kept all the labels on the cans. There is this crazy tradition of taking off labels on canned foods on boats. If you are not storing the cans in the bilge, where they come off and clog the bilge pump, leave them on. I wanted to have a two-month supply of food for two men who consume 2,500 calories per day. That is 300,000 calories. The only way I could tell if I was getting close to that goal was to enter the nutritional information into a spreadsheet. I stopped counting when I hit my goal after the fourth grocery store. I probably spent 3000 on the provisioning alone and had closer to 450,000 calories on board. With our spares, we did not have enough storage space for it all. The lighter stuff was put into cloth cubes that were stacked in the quarter berth. Stevie would get the port single berth. Daly and I were going to get the empty half of the V berth not taken up by Stevie's guitar and huge backpack. Jana, Sophie, Daly, and I shared the V berth on Thursday, April 28, 2016. Jana and Sophie flew out of New Orleans to a conference early on Friday morning. Because I picked up Stevie late on Thursday, they never really got to talk before Jana and Sophie left the boat, never to return. They would next join the boat in Panama in July, if all went well. Until that time, the crew was just Stevie, Daily Dog, and myself. So you can get the rest of the audiobook by pledging as little as $3 on patreon.com slash slowboatsailing. And that's the only place right now that you can get the audiobook. And the print book is not available in any stores right now. We're not going to go live on Amazon until late November for the print and Kindle versions of the book. So if you want to hear the rest, you can only hear it on patreon.com by pledging $3. Anyone who pledges a dollar on Patreon can get all the bonus episodes going back to episode 10 
with SV Delos. That's 18 bonus episodes for $1 on Patreon.com. We just had our first Captain Level sponsor. We're so happy about that. The reward for that, in addition to the bonus episodes, the audio book, and a hard copy book of How to Sail Around the World Part-Time, if you pledge at the Captain or Admiral level prior to November 7th, you get your name in Slow Boat to Cuba under the Acknowledgement section in both the Kindle and print versions. So thank you, Anders, for being a Captain-level sponsor, and you'll get your name in sailing history. We gave away several copies of How to Sail Around the World Part-Time and my book, Slow Boat to the Bahamas, as part of hitting kind of some great thresholds, going over 250 subscribers on YouTube, uh, getting more than 10,000 views on YouTube, and getting more than 500 followers on Twitter. So that's great that everybody's uh, following, responding, watching, listening. I think uh, prior to recording this, we had about 33,000 downloads on the podcast. So I, because I've been working so hard on the book, I have not put out as many of the YouTube videos, vlogs, around the world vlogs as I would have hoped, but I do plan to put out our episode seven of the Round the World series, which has me and Stevie hiking up Providencia's biggest peak. Uh, we already have all the, the YouTube episodes for Slow Boat to Cuba, and you should check out the vlog series give you an idea of, you know, how much detail I can go into the the vlogs versus the the book itself. The book is about three and a half hours recorded. The vlogs for Slow Boat to Cuba are about 40 minutes. So uh, it's definitely a ratio of, of five times more content in the book versus on the vlogs. But you don't get as many pictures and sometimes... The pictures are what you want to see. We donated $48 our August and September Patreon revenues to the American Red Cross Disaster Relief to help the victims of the floods in Louisiana and the victims of Hurricane Matthew. I'm toying with the idea of sailing to Hiva Oa in early December, and if you are interested in sailing 3,500 nautical miles nonstop across the Pacific Ocean from Ecuador to Hiva Oa Marquesas, the time is now to contact me. Uh, my email is linuswilson at outlook.com. You can also send a message to me on Facebook or on Twitter personal message in either place and maybe we can talk all right oh, bye for now have some fun on the water next week we will have tasha and ryan of chase's story youtube channel so much fun in episode 29 this november speak to you then hi i'm Jana wilson thank you for listening to the slow boat sailing podcast subscribe to our free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com